Welcome to another episode of the Speech Entropy Podcast today with Andreas Schumacher. Hi, Andreas. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well, Jonathan. Thank you. Uh, great to be here. And uh, thanks so much for having me as a guest in your podcast. Yes, absolutely. I'm quite excited for this. There's a bunch of things that we can talk about uh, topic-wise, uh, you know, very up-to-date, lots of things happening. Uh, but, you know, as usual, we always start with the same thing in the sense that we would obviously like to know who is it that we're talking to. And therefore, uh, first things first, I would like you to kind of go in a storytelling way through the different kind of stages of your professional life and basically explain us of what is it that you're doing today and how did you end up there? Sure. Uh, thanks so much. Well, in a nutshell, I'm a physicist. I'd say I love to explore new things and I really enjoy working with people. Uh, there's actually a quote by a famous physicist, uh, Nobel Prize laureate in the 60s or 70s, Murray Gell-Mann, uh, who said, imagine how hard physics would be if particles could think. Uh, so in addition to the uh, physics side of things, I really, as I, as I grew and as I grew responsibility, I became quite fascinated in the, in the human and organizational side of technology. Um, and that's something which is really fascinating and uh, fulfilling me. But let me uh, go through it a little bit more chronologically. So um, I grew up in the northern part of the Black Forest, uh, owe a lot to my, my parents for uh, showing me nature and encouraging interest in uh, technology, just asking questions. Uh, went to school at the, as it was then called, Technical University of Karlsruhe, and then spent six years in the Bay Area where I did my PhD, uh, worked at one of the national labs and uh, in Berkeley, and really had a, a wonderful time, uh, soaked up the Bay Area culture uh, in the late 90s, um, and uh, also met my American wife there. Um, also dabbed a little bit in, uh, in management consultancy, and we'll probably uh, get back to that uh, later. And, and, and then, though, started my career in, uh, in R&D uh, at Infineon. I joined the company at the peak of the uh, last internet uh, hype uh, in 2001. And then after an initial stint in R&D, I transitioned between various central functions, the business side of things, uh, which also included uh, going through a bankruptcy with one of uh, the Infineon spin-offs for uh, some of your uh, perhaps older listeners. Uh, Kimonda was one of the more uh, spectacular failures uh, before and in the in the Lehman crisis of a technology company in Germany. Uh, an interesting experience, by the way, which uh, in the US is probably much more part of the culture and part of a managerial education, not so in Germany, but uh, even though I wouldn't want to do it more than once necessarily, I, I guess I learned a lot from that. Um, that led me to um, joining uh, Siemens, uh, Siemens' financial services unit, more specifically, uh, where I led corporate development, including um, communications, which, again, added a very fascinating perspective to what I had done uh, prior um, to that already, uh, strategy and M&A. Also, interesting, I learned to look uh, at how financial professionals look at business problems, different from engineers. And um, uh, since I listened to uh, many of your podcasts and uh, you have both the professional side and the financial side of it uh, on, uh, on the program, I, I always find it fascinating uh, how to bridge the, um, the gap between those two. 
Came back to Infineon about uh, five and a half years ago in my current position. And so uh, just to resolve this, I'm, I'm responsible globally for uh, strategy and, and m and uh, And that's really been a, a wonderful, very, very interesting time. Highlight perhaps our $10 billion acquisition of Cypress Semiconductor uh, in the US two years ago as, as the professional highlight. What I love is to talk to people that have a natural sciences background, you know, because that's, I mean, the natural sciences are fascinating itself. And, um, you know, before, before we, we go further, you know, I just wanted to, to jump in and ask, you know, why physics? How, how did it basically, you know, start with you choosing physics? I guess probably it was a, a decision on one hand uh, impacted by my father. My, my father um, actually passed away a, a year ago, uh, was a physics teacher and, and more than a physics teacher, somebody who really um, embodied this love for understanding nature at its very deepest. He looked not into the, not only into the teaching aspect, uh, uh, Germany, it's a gymnasium, so it's like undergraduate and high school in the US, uh, aspect of things, but also a thought about the, the philosophical aspects of it, about the religious aspects of, of physics, um, some of those questions you get into uh, when you think about uh, quantum physics, in particular about uh, deterministic aspects of physics. Um, and I, I always was drawn to this, um, again, very holistic view, sort of going to how the world works at the very deepest and, and fundamental level. And this understanding for this appreciation for physics is really something which stayed with me all my life. Um, the fascination for learning new things led me into other areas and ultimately also management and aspects of leadership. But it was really uh, fueled and started by this uh, interest in, uh, in understanding nature. And I, I think physics is still great for that, despite all the fascinating developments which you have in other parts of natural sciences these days. Right. So, what do you, so why didn't you then stay in academia? I mean, uh, that, that, that is obviously... You know the the question that I need to ask as a follow up here. Well, uh, good 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 question. And um, look, I mean, um, in the end, academia, as fascinating as it is, at some point also requires you to narrow your focus um, fairly clearly if you want to be successful. And so, when I looked in my uh, then professional environment at uh, my thesis advisor, at some of the junior professors, I felt that they really had to put um, a lot of effort, a lot of focus in a very narrow field until they ultimately got to the point uh, where they enjoyed the real freedom of academic research, of working with students, of, of um, you know, having enough funding uh, to run a, a large lab. And um, I felt this sort of um, multifaceted aspect of working in a large corporation was something which uh, suited me better at the time. And then what I didn't know at that time uh, was how fascinating it is to work with people, and that ties a little bit back into this quote, which I um, which I told you about right at the beginning. Um, physics can be hard, 
Um, but the idea of working with humans, of working with an organization, of working with a team uh, challenges you in a very different way. And I think a lot of the guests you had on your show also really embody that, that it's one thing to be innovative and to look into new, uh, new things, whether that's physics or biology or, or electrical engineering, but then transforming an organization, working with a team and getting, uh, getting um, achievements, getting to achievements beyond what you're capable as an individual, um, that's, that's really fascinating. And that's what's so fascinating for me right now um, to work with um, a large leading uh, semiconductor company at the cutting edge of, uh, of science of semiconductor physics um, uh, to create value for you know, our customers, uh, but really also for the people who work here. Right. So, I mean, if you look back and you've already, you know, spent, spent, spent some years uh, within the corporate world, and have seen a lot, have been in multiple roles, as you've uh, explained. Um, did you never think about kind of switching sides in the sense of, you know, uh, going from the corporate world um, to, let's say, uh, a more agile environment in the sense of a startup? Like, uh, because I can imagine as well from your time and being in Berkeley uh, back in the days that, uh, you know, even though I mean it's some time back, but still, uh, I think at this point it was already clear uh, what you know uh, Silicon Valley and and all the innovations going on there uh, were about uh, you know to become. So, question is, have you ever have you ever crossed the thought of doing that? You do you want an honest answer? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm 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 probably way too risk averse for a startup, um, and I you know it, at at that point in my career I can. I can say that because I've made a career outside the startup, uh, startup environment, at least outside, uh, as far as I'm personally concerned. Um, I, I really admire, enjoy working with startups. And you know, we as Infineon work with startups, my team and I personally work with, with startups. Um, I admire those people. I encourage um, you know, mentees of mine. Just recently had a, a, a great discussion um, with a, a woman who, who used to be my mentee and uh, then actually spent some time in academia. And then we talked about where her career could, could put her. And I really encouraged her to think about uh, doing uh, you know, startup work, um, certainly early in her career. And I basically um, told her, we worked out together that all the other things she can do later in her life. Um, and um, but, but really, I'm a fairly... You know, conventional risk averse person, which if you want to put it uh, in a more positive spin, you need those type of people also who can uh, get things done and uh, get, in this case, strategy and M&A done in a large corporation. It's a little bit of different mindset. Uh, and I want to be realistic in what I, what I claim and what I do. Yeah, you know, but but I, I love that. It's, um, you know, this, this honesty, because, you know, nowadays, obviously, after after all the you know successes of the big um, the big tech companies, you know uh, entrepreneurship is something that has been glorified all the way. And I've I talked about this with a with a lot of people that uh, are entrepreneurs or not entrepreneurs. And I think it's you know it's that's the best answer that you could have given. You know, and it's an honest one where it's about like knowing yourself and knowing like what you're good at and what you're not good at, right? So that that's why I love it. And and by the way, Jonathan, there there is one other aspect, and I I don't know whether you you want to get into that or whether we have time for that, um, I think there is also a very interesting discussion about how large corporations can successfully engage with, with startup. Uh, there's been a lot of hype around that. 
Um, I do think there is tremendous value in the cooperation between large companies and startups, but it's not necessarily um, the conventional buzzwords. Um, and um, you know, let, let me know if you want to uh, spend a few minutes talking about that, because um, I think there is an interesting change going on in the industry, which I also um, observe with a number of my peers in, in large corporate, certainly in the semiconductor uh, or in the German tax space. Absolutely. I, 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 I'm glad that you're mentioning this because, um, you know, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people that are in the corporate space, um, you know, that are, you know, some of the biggest organizations on this planet and to people that are in leadership on transformation uh, when it comes to tech, but also the, all the aspects that it involves. And, um, you know, uh, there's not always the same answer and there's different opinions. So that's why I would love to get your opinion on kind of the status quo, maybe what you've seen, um, you know, in the past and how you personally see it changing in the sense of, I mean, you know, from, from, from the things that have been learned with the first kind of steps, you know, in collaborating with startups, but now like, how do you think um, companies can do it better or how that is, you know, changing at all? Yeah. Well, I'm happy to share some of uh, my thoughts and how we at Infineon um, are approaching the subject now. And basically, if I go back, uh, when I first encountered this idea of uh, corporate venture capital, which was very much synonymous uh, with, with working with startups initially, um, you had a situation where um, many companies, big ones, small ones, uh, set up their own uh, internal venture funds or uh, vehicles to, to fund startups. Um, and uh, there were usually a number of justifications. Uh, it was never only about financial gain. It was also about um, you know, getting some, um, some access to interesting technology, uh, about people. And then uh, finally, something which was often cited uh, or even is still cited is this idea of um, soaking up the startup culture and uh, startups changing large corporations in becoming more agile, for example, you mentioned that, uh, or you alluded to that yourself uh, just before. Um, and I think there's a number of things we can unpack here. Um, first of all, if I start with the last one, let me be very brutal. Um, a startup or even 10 startups won't change an organization of 30 or 40 or 50 or 100,000 people. Um, that, that's just not going to happen. Um, Yes, if you do it smartly, if you expose top management to startups, to startup culture, if you say you organize a top management trip to the, to the valley uh, for a week, um, that can, can drive a change. But that, again, um, requires you to uh, very carefully think about how you want to achieve this organizational change. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is why are venture capital funds successful, despite the fact that startup investment is risky and that many startups fail, well, because they have a portfolio to manage, right? Uh, they invest in many companies of the same or of very similar um, you know, business areas and technologies, and some will succeed and some won't. That means you need to invest in a lot of companies. Uh, you need to have the financial 
um, firepower to do that. You need to have the team to do that. You need to have the processes set up uh, to sort of go through startup pitches and, 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 and evaluate those startups. And very, very few corporates have the size and scale to do that. Uh, maybe Qualcomm Venture does it or Intel Venture does it, but very few of the smaller companies um, can, can really do that well. And um, I would even argue that, that Infineon, even though we're the ninth or 10th largest semiconductor company in the world right now, have really the, um, the, the size, the critical mass to do that well. Um, so inevitably, you'll have to toss a coin to some extent, which is not really the way how you want to approach things in a large company. You do want to be a little bit more systematic. And then there is the last part, if I look at it from the, from the perspective of startups, is especially nowadays, risk capital is cheap. You can get money for a good idea anywhere and anytime, perhaps in the Valley a little bit easier than in, in, in Germany. And that's something which is often criticized, but, but even that um, startups we're working with, um, they get access to, to good quality funding um, if they have reasonable business ideas. So look at it the other way. What can a company like Infineon offer to a startup and what can a startup presumably expect from Infineon? Infineon is a market leader in semiconductors for, for automotive. Let's just stick with that as an example. Automotive is a very challenging market for a startup to get into because you have um, a relatively small number of customers with excruciatingly high quality standards. Um, you have a very hard time getting into those very focused professional procurement groups or engineering groups. So a startup working with Infineon and getting access to um, say automotive customers, getting access to our internal engineering know-how of how to design electronic systems, semiconductor systems and solutions for, uh, for, for OEMs. Um, that's a real benefit. And as a startup, you can't get that if you work with a venture capitalist um, or with a bank. And for Infineon, if we do it right and choose the right startups, what we can do is essentially we can learn about how those Agile, um, innovative companies use semiconductors to build solutions, to build systems for our customers. Uh, so essentially, um, we would choose startups typically who are one step ahead of us or one step downstream from us in the value chain. And by working with those, um, it's a little bit like uh, rapid prototyping or um, leveraging our R&D capabilities by not doing it ourselves, but at a system level, working together with a number of smaller partners. And so I think, um, therefore, sorry for a slightly lengthy answer, the, the future of startup investments is not so much in um, minority equity stakes and in this idea of changing the culture of the company. It's in, a, in an extension of your R&D work um, where you don't even need to invest capital because the benefits for both parties are very obvious uh, to both parties. Uh, maybe you uh, pay the startup um, engineering costs in exchange for some uh, rights to IP. So really you focus your cooperation on what's most meaningful for the large corporation and also what's meaningful and helpful um, for the startup in this, this point. And if they need money, they can go, uh, they can go to a, a venture capitalist who will happily provide that, especially if a corporate can back that. So not sure if I, if I answered your question 
Um, uh, but I'm, I'm going to stop here and, and, and see if you have follow-ups. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what you just talked about is that is, that is often, oftentimes kind of the, you know, the discussion between the difference of strategic, you know, and, and kind of financial investments from, a, from a, let's say, corporate venture capital side of things. Have you, from, from your perspective, I mean, you know, there's the traditional, you know, M&A activities of a, of a large corporate, right? There is, um, there is uh, now in, in the more, more recent years kind of, you know, trying to establish, you know, more strategic relationships in the sense of collaborations. Would you just explain uh, in more detail when it comes to, let's say, you know, startup leveraging, obviously, scale and, and, and expertise, um, uh, networks, et cetera, of a corporate um, versus, you know, agility and, let's say, new, new, new technology kind of um, coming from startups for the corporate. How do you see that? You know, there's there's oftentimes this this conversation around, um, you know, um, the the troubles to kind of cooperate within you know the different units that you have uh, within a corporate because I mean it's this big and then there's people that you know because in the sense of there's a transformation the, the the problem is always or not the problem but the challenge is that ultimately everything evolves around you know us humans. And um, that we are at the center of everything, and that um, obviously we are also reluctant to change. Right? We have our um, um, our comfort zones, and for us to step out of these comfort zones obviously always means that we need to stretch. And therefore, saying that, for example, if we have you know uh, business unit X or uh, or Y or whatever, and uh, working on things, right, and having their daily setup, you know, their processes and everything, which is everything is necessary for, you know, serving that scale that you have within a corporate, isn't that the pure, true nature of, you know, of the challenge to then cooperate with something that is drastically new, you know, coming from the outside, hasn't developed internally and, um, you know, requires maybe to move faster, differently, whatever. First of all, I, I very much agree with your um, assessment that uh, the way our environment is changing, uh, becoming more more volatile, uh, more uncertain, that that requires different kinds of collaborations within, especially large large companies, because otherwise we will just not be able to adopt quickly enough to those uh, changing uh, environments. Um, I, you know, I, I can't speak for. Um, just any company, but I do believe that Infineon has a fairly unique culture of collaboration. And you know, if you ask yourself where that comes from, that's because Infineon went uh, through some you know, difficult years during the Lehman crisis. Um, and the, the core of those people who formed the company back then really stuck very, very closely together. So you feel an immense sense of a very positive uh, camaraderie um, amongst the, the, the leadership of Infineon. And that was eventually, of course, supplemented by a lot of new people who joined. But this sense of being uh, one company, the sense of being innovation-driven and curiosity-driven, uh, that's really something uh, which you feel feel very, very, uh, very, very strongly. And uh, just sort of one anecdote, uh, which, which might sort of um, make that a little bit more, uh, more tangible for you. I remember when I had joined the company uh, for about a year um, and 
didn't really completely arrive at that point. We were discussing a, a large uh, M&A transaction. And I remember sitting in the office uh, on, uh, on, on a Friday evening and I don't know, probably calls with bankers in the US or something like that. And then around uh, 7, 7.30, I got a call from one of our division presidents and his chief marketing officers. And basically what he said was, um, Andreas, uh, we're about to go home. Uh, for the weekend, just wanted to check with you uh, and see if you needed anything. And I thought that was truly remarkable, and it stuck with me for for many, many years. Um, so you know, here I'm working in a corporate functions, and you know, business people often have their own views of the corporate functions. And so here, a division president calls me together with with this with this head of marketing, and really asks me, you know, are you done for the weekend? Is there anything we can help? Um, and, and that sort of collaborative culture uh, really developed over the last years at, uh, or, or really last decade um, at, at Infineon. Um, th that's one aspect, that's sort of more of a cultural, um, a cultural aspect unique to our company. Um, if, if some of your listeners maybe ask what of that um, they, they can take for their own professional environment, um, maybe two hints. Uh, first of all, at Infineon, we are, I would say, very good in setting up projects for situations which require collaboration outside the established organizational culture. Um, and I say specifically project, because if you do that right, it means you appoint a project manager, you appoint a cross-functional um, cross-business project team and really give this team the budget. You empower them with the right kind of decision power and you let them work. Um, oftentimes, companies make the mistake of setting up projects and that's just work loaded on top of an already 100% uh, loaded schedule. But if you do it right and really empower a team to work on um, cross-functional and again, cross-business issues, especially on innovation topics, um, you can be remarkably successful. Um, some of it we have institutionalized in a maybe um, you know, slightly less formal ways. We have so-called I-communities, innovation communities, which is a slightly looser networks of people who would look into topics like artificial intelligence or like compound semiconductors, uh, or other topics, um, they're organized on, on a platform. Um, and I think, um, especially now, if you get into the opportunities, you can get through digitalization, um, through uh, company internal social media, uh, what has been tremendously boosted uh, through the pandemic. Um, I'm actually looking forward to uh, the next three, four, five years, um, next decade, of um, these boundaries within an organization and not only Infineon um, breaking down the classical silos will simply not, not work anymore. Um, and especially the younger people uh, collaborating much, much more than they, um, than they did in the past. Um, and I think that's a tremendously exciting uh, time also to be in a, in a strategy team to uh, be able to uh, witness and enable that type of change. One thing that we obviously need to talk about, and I think this is the best, you know, the best way to, to jump into this is, is to go in more depth of, uh, you know, what is it that you are up to right now in more detail. And, and that, you know, I would, I would like to start off with, um, you know, you kind of giving a 101 of the semi, semiconductor industry. So, you know, just like what is there to, you know, what does a listener need to know 
of the semicond uh, semiconductor industry because obviously you know not everybody is 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 very familiar with with you know the the most important details around that but uh, you know just if if that would be a, if the semiconductor industry would be a startup you know that would be the time for an elevator pitch for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an awfully big big startup probably. Um, so the you know total semiconductor uh, market uh, is um, you know, to the tune of uh, um, uh, of four hundred uh, billion US dollars. So fairly big market. But no, um, uh, joking aside, uh, yeah. What what's what's the semiconductor industry about? You know, I I would almost challenge you and your. Uh, your listeners, our listeners, to kind of stretch out their hands almost and like you know, do a 180. Um, and I would say within your reach, uh, within those you know, two or three square meters, which you have around you, uh, nothing uh, would work um, without semiconductors. Semiconductors are really uh, to a degree which very few people realize um, the, the glue which holds our worlds together um, and uh, without semiconductors, um, you will not have digitalization. You will not have electrification. Um, you will not be able to deal with uh, with climate change. Um, so microelectronics really is at the at the core of almost everything we uh, we do today. And um, pick any example you want. Um, a car. Um, actually, two weeks ago, I was home at my at my mom's place uh, to mow the lawn. And so my, my parents still have an old two-stroke lawnmower, which I used to fiddle with when I would, was smaller. It's still running, surprisingly. Um, but I would bet um, the most uh, electronic part that lawnmower has is a spark plug. Um, our neighbor has one of those fancy, um, you know, sci-fi automated lawnmowers. And if you think about that, I mean, that has probably a GPS receiver. It has Wi-Fi, maybe even Bluetooth. It has electric motors, it has the batteries, it has the charging system. And then of course you have uh, the charging station of that thing, but it doesn't really stop there because, um, and again, I'm not a lawnmower expert. So um, if somebody uh, from a, a uh, from Bosch or so is on the call, forgive me, but I'm assuming that a lot of what you do to control this lawnmower um, is in the cloud. Uh, so you need servers, uh, you need cloud connectivity, et cetera, et cetera. So you go from something which has virtually no semiconductors to something um, which, which doesn't move an inch without semiconductors. So semiconductors are essentially the hardware, um, you know, the piping, the engines on which uh, digitalization happens, on which artificial intelligence happens, um, anything um, we do rests on, on semiconductors. Right. So, I mean, as you said, right, uh, it's an insane huge market and there's, you know, almost everything is running on that. So, and it's depending on that. And therefore, you know, what you said, one thing that you quickly mentioned in, in uh, you know, in our conversation today was that um, uh, Infineon is, um, you know, the the 10th largest semiconductor company in the world. I, I think it's the 10th largest, so don't don't pinpoint me on that number. But um, so how do the different actors differentiate? I think that is important to, you know, to kind of outline because, you know, if, if you're going to drop now a couple of names, the listeners probably have heard of these companies. But how does this market basically and the most important actors? So if we take, let's say, the top 10, Right or I don't know. Let's let's take the top ten or top fifteen. 
you know, how, how do these different actors basically differentiate in the sense of making up this market? Right. Um, so I guess the most classic one would be the so-called IDM or integrated device manufacturer. And Infineon is probably a prime example of that. Um, and that's a company which manufactures semiconductors from so-called raw wafers. Um, in the past, those used to be silicon wafers. Um, we are now moving to an entirely different class of materials, so-called compound semiconductors. Let's leave this aside. If you want, we can, we can touch on that later. So we take those, uh, those raw wafers, um, and then you go to the process of where you structure those uh, wafers, um, and you then package them, and you sell them. So integrated um, device manufacturer, hence we cover essentially from the wafer to the, from the, to the device and you know, increasingly also you know, maybe software aspects. And so uh, we cover the entire value chain. Um, that um, value chain coverage split up, I would say in the 90s. And what happened was that for certain type of semiconductors, um, it turned out that you could manufacture them um, and design them in a rather standardized manner. And those are very broadly speaking, um, the semiconductors, which you now call microprocessors and microcontrollers, um, those uh, which you have as the main processing units uh, in your cars, in your PCs, in your, in your cell phones. Um, there, you can standardize this interface between the designer um, who develops the chip and the one who manufactures it. And as a consequence, you could um, benefit from huge economies of scale in manufacturing. And that led to the um, emergence of those so-called foundries. Um, and most of them are located in, in Taiwan nowadays, which is another interesting aspect geopolitically, um, which essentially are the um, manufacturers of most of the standardized um, and also most of the high end in terms of um, technology requirements, um, semiconductors nowadays. Right. And then on the other hand, um, or on the other end of that, um, you had a development where um, fabulous semiconductor companies uh, developed. And those are then logically the ones who would not have a, a fab like Infineon does or many fabs like Infineon does, uh, but who do only the design and then would hand it over to those foundries. And I would say those are the key players which you need to understand um, for, I would say, most of the last 20, 30 years. And then there is a new class, which is just emerging, again, a fascinating trend, you find that the large companies like a Google, like an Apple, um, you know, probably also um, a Facebook or a Tesla, um, they are companies who start to design their own semiconductors. So they reach back in the value chain, some cases, um, some of those companies um, reach beyond intermediaries now work with Infineon um, directly um, on, on projects. Um, so this um, classical separation between customer of a semiconductor and a manufacturer of the semiconductor is breaking up a little bit. Um, again, an, an interesting development. Yeah, and we're going to dive deeper into this uh, in just a little bit. But, you know, as you said, there's, you know, X many contexts basically where, um, you know, semiconductors are being used and then, you know, um, among different different types of industries. And um, I think why this episode is particularly interesting is because, 
you know, um, the semiconductors have been quite, you know, quite making the news and, and, and basically in the past, past couple of weeks, months, um, and especially within basically, uh, you know, I would say probably this year, and then I'm not sure on, on how, how big of a deal it was last year, um, but, you know, one of the, the, the key messages that I guess most people have heard of in whatever sense that is, you, you, you uh, mentioned it a little bit about the big tech companies, you know, so everyone that is kind of doing, you know, data science, machine learning, and is kind of in the AI space has, has known about that in that sense, or, you know, people that are in the mobility space have, have heard about that, that there's basically this, you know, kind of, yeah, shortage in, 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 in production. And, um, you know, that's obviously one of the central questions that I needed to ask um, is, what's the reason for that? There is not one reason, but it's a confluence of a number of, of trends. Um, I think there's four, but uh, depends on a little bit on how you count. The first one we have already covered. Um, there is this really long-term secular trend uh, towards more semiconductors everywhere around us, uh, cars, consumer electronics, um, you name it. Um, but that's something which was, I would say, fairly well priced into the markets. Uh, companies understood that um, and could, uh, could react to that, build uh, capacities both in-house and then these foundries, which I, uh, which I introduced just a moment ago. But then come early 2020 and the pandemic. And that is interesting because a number of things happened. Um, in, the, in the very early stages, uh, demand dropped pretty much everywhere. But then you could very clearly see that in some areas, for example, those uh, who benefited from uh, work from home or, or stay at home, uh, demand surged back to uh, levels which we had not seen before. Um, we recently had a discussion with a, a large PC customer um, of ours, a US customer, um, who changed um, the market model uh, from one PC or one laptop per household to one laptop per person, uh, which nowadays doesn't seem surprising anymore. Um, and keep in mind, that's not only the laptop, because once again, you have the infrastructure on the other side behind it, uh, where you want to host your data, where you want to host your Netflix videos, et cetera, et cetera. So a huge demand boost in one part of the market. At the same time, specifically um, for car OEMs, car manufacturers, the, the future was very much uncertain. Um, in Germany, on top of that, you had the uncertainty around diesel. Um, you had some uncertainty about, uh, about um, uh, CO2 regulations. OEMs, car OEMs really stepped on the brake very, very hard. And what we also need to keep in mind is that historically, uh, supply chains in the automotive industry have been incredibly efficient and lean. Um, so there was uh, not much to live from once the market recovered. What happened in the market, in the semiconductor markets, is that capacities were shifted. That doesn't uh, happen um, overnight. Again, something we can get into, um, but um, it happened forcefully. And why this happened is is uh, is interesting, um, especially sort of from a German perspective, where car companies are you know, such a such a prevalent part of our industry. Um, very very roughly, 
the semiconductor purchasing volume of all the car companies globally combined equals that of Apple's. And I might be off by a little bit here and there, but the general idea is uh, once this shift from automotive to um, consumer electronics, and I'm just using Apple here as a proxy, um, happened, there was simply relatively little capacity left um, when the, the car industry came back um, probably about half a year ago or three quarters of a year ago. There was no um, slack in the supply chain. Um, and then you had another effect, which is, um, I would argue that over the last year or so, um, our um, a collective world consciousness has really shifted towards a recognition of the importance of, of climate change. So you saw then on the car side, a shift from internal combustion engines to electrically powered vehicles. And here again, to give you an idea, um, a high-end um, electric vehicle uh, nowadays has semiconductor content to the tune of something like 600, um, 800 euros, uh, whereas um, simple um, internal combustion engine cars or even middle-class cars have maybe a semiconductor content of 100 or of 200 euros. Um, so essentially you increase that by a factor of five or so roughly. Um, so a lot of stress specifically on the, uh, on the automotive supply chain and that had, had ripple effects. So that was the pandemic. Um, uh, then I'm going to go very quickly into what I would call the bucket of special effects. Um, that is just um, stuff that happens. We had this winter storm in Austin, Texas, where a number of semiconductor manufacturers have their sites. Uh, one um, Chinese semiconductor manufacturer had a, had a fire in one of their plants for automotive semiconductors. And then um, finally, in some countries, uh, COVID and the lockdowns impacted manufacturing capabilities, um, at least for a certain step of the value chain. So those are three of four, and those are the ones which are probably fairly easy to understand. The fourth one is a little bit more technical, and I would have to talk about nanometers and nodes and Moore's law, which I'd be super happy to get into. But again, I'll uh, stop, take a sip of water, and you tell me if I, if I should go there. <laughs> That's perfect. I, I want to dive deeper into, um, you know, Infineon's role. So, to, you know, just to touch upon, on two things. So, with every major company, there's uh, people that dive deep into, um, into trans research. Right, and um, as as you as you touched upon, you said so. There's let's say let's take these two examples, right? So one being consumer tech, and something that, um, especially within you know the last decade, uh, with with you know um, cloud computing and and all these different services that we as people use on a day to day basis, you know, have accelerated, and and um, we basically having supercomputers uh, in our pockets on a daily basis everywhere, almost everyone on this planet. And um, the other thing, the second part or the second um, aspect, which is you know the shift within the uh, uh, automotive world, which uh, which is which was or is, is is right now you know in a super hot phase uh, towards uh, electric mobility. And um, you know these two things, I would I would argue that the first one was something that um, could be, let's say, observed, obviously, very steadily within the last decade, right? So kind of uh, with, with, with the constant improvements in, in consumer tech 
and and all these different services coming um, coming out. But with the second one, which it was obviously, I mean, you know, if I would ask you right now again, you know, to be honest about it, how have you kind of observed, or or when was it clear for you that um, electric mobility is basically the thing that is going to be there, you know, and that this shift is coming. So basically where I want to go towards is to, isn't that something or aren't these two things, these two major trends, basically something that would be, you know, a key to kind of, you know, identify from a strategic perspective. So I guess that's a, a question on a number of different levels. Um, maybe in the most abstract, I would say that imagining the future is not always as hard as it seems, but accurately predicting when it will happen. And then in a, in a large company, deciding when you want to be ready, when you want to invest, put the resources, the, you know, the fabs behind that to take that risk. Um, that's the more difficult part. So it's not about whether electrical cars would come or autonomous cars would arrive, but it's when is it really going to take off? Um, and you know, when are cars really going to drive um, at L5, L4 autonomous or you know, largely autonomously? Um, that's what the, what the challenge is. What helps at Infineon certainly is that really we are a company which is in there for the long run. So I guess that that's my that's my first answer. Um, it's not not everything is kind of uh, all all honky dory and, and positive. And I you know if you specifically ask about um, electrification and the you know, power semiconductors which go into electrical cars, I set through a number of corporate strategy reviews when you saw these um, you know, hockey stick curves about uh, when, when the market would come and, and you know, when the exponential curve would really, you know, really show its force. Um, and uh, we also were wrong a few times, but um, we stuck to our guns and now the market is exploding and now we're ready. Um, if I can sort of now, open a little parenthesis here. You might have read uh, we are reporting uh, recording this now on on September twentieth. Just last uh, last week on on Friday, we uh, opened this new fab uh, for uh, one point six billion dollar, one of the um, largest investment the company has ever made into power semiconductors, three hundred millimeters in in, in Villac. Um, and that was a decision which was made in two thousand eighteen when people generally were. Um, frowning or laughing about why we would invest in that. And, and now we're ready. And it's sort of a, a sign of, of, of how we go about it long-term. Um, and I think that the, the sort of the underlying truth to that is um, that as much as people talk about uncertainty and, and how the future is unpredictable, um, it, it helps if you have sort of uh, underlying constant values, uh, a constant you know, sort of belief in, in your innovation um, and, um, uh, and, and, and some of those, some of those trends. Now, so that's one aspect. The other thing which I would want to mention, you know, be, be close to your customers, listen to your customers. And um, that's also an, a transition for, uh, for semiconductor companies coming traditionally from the role of a component supplier where you would maybe talk to your uh, procurement counterpart um, to 
uh, if you want, graduate from that and really talk to not only the procurement people, but to the engineers, to the designers uh, who built those electronic systems um, and understand why and what they do in order to get the maximum value or performance out. And if you do that, I think you get a fairly good sense of, um, uh, of where the market goes and when the market really starts. Um, not sure if I answered your question, um, but I'm gonna, gonna stop here then for a moment. Obviously it's not an easy answer, but I think what you, what, you know, with the answer that you just um, gave in regards to let's say long-term view, that's what people oftentimes don't realize, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of, especially in Europe, you have a lot of criticism when it comes to tech in general and, and, and basically on, on, on how certain players are reacting, you know, slower or not slower to certain things. And I think, you know, oftentimes people don't realize that things are not trivial, right? They're not, it's not that you make a decision you know, and then you're going to execute upon it. And that's the decision for kind of your next month or next year or whatever, right? So those are the decisions, you know, for example, what you just said in terms of the fab is, you know, 2018 and now basically now you guys are ready, but that's not yesterday, right? So, and, and those are, those are long-term plannings and, and, and long-term um, budget plans as well. What, what I want to kind of, um, you know, now use this as a bridge to, because also looking at the time, Use this as a bridge for um, a topic that evolves ultimately around or that could be placed into this entire geopolitical space. In the sense that um, quickly touched upon this with, with the criticisms that we have or are facing here in Europe, in the sense that in this entire tech bubble, so to say, that uh, uh, sometimes uh, with the people that are in it do not realize that uh, sometimes it can actually be a bubble and that the world around them is as well, you know, still existing. Um, we, we, are, we are oftentimes talk, talking about this world that is divided between the US and China. I think uh, a year ago, I, I used to ask this question a lot to people uh, in, in, in that regard. So I haven't asked this question for a long time, but I'm curious to, to get your perspective uh, on it because you've also lived in the US uh, for, for quite some time and, and probably, you know, pre-COVID have been, uh, have, have seen the world. Uh, and I, I would like to get your perspective on it. First, your personal perspective, and then we can talk about Infineon as well, on how you see this topic. And so kind of, you know, this, this diversion between the US and China and, and kind of the position of Europe in it. Well, that's a, that's a difficult one. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you allow me to um, start with a, with a personal remark. I mean, look, I, I grew up, uh, was a very much young adult when the, when the wall came down. And uh, then subsequently, when I could travel uh, through Europe with, uh, with one currency, with new, no borders. And I, so I, I'd really say I'm probably uh, one of the earlier generations of, um, of people uh, living in, in, in Europe who really uh, saw the benefit of um, uh, of really true European and and then also global cooperation, uh, as you said, I studied in the U.S. My thesis advisor was an Israeli, and the team was from France and a Korean, and so it's like this wonderful, diverse atmosphere, which in in Berkeley probably in the Bay Area you can you can experience like uh, hardly anywhere else in the world. So I truly believe in this uh, global exchange of ideas, of, of goods, and of, of sort of working towards 
common uh, common goals and 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 at advance. At the same time, I also need to realize that I am privileged um, and that I can fly to uh, you know visit my my in laws in the in the U.S. and go on on vacation in Asia and and sort of enjoy this culture and that in many countries there are people who were you know disadvantaged and not looked after um, and um, not not helped through this through this transition and and grew resentful um, so um, personally I, I look at this emerging multipolar world I'm not ready to talk about a bipolar world but but more more um, uh, you know the trend towards uh, you know, you know, decoupling, as it's sometimes called, I look at that with a with a degree of personal personal sadness and regret, um, especially because the challenges which we need to globally tackle um, aren't getting smaller. And I, I've mentioned climate change before, probably as the, the most most preeminent one. So, um, with with sadness, um, but also with a degree of um, realization that at least in retrospect, uh, it's not entirely surprising. Now, if you look at, at that from a, from a corporate level, um, it, to some extent, the answer is exactly the same. Um, the semiconductor industry is a truly global industry. Um, there's the saying that um, our semiconductors uh, before they get to the customer, uh, travel around the world more often than our managers do. Um, and you can argue whether that's that's good or not. Um, but uh, you had a, a, a tremendously successful uh, you know global industry. Um, and um, by those boundaries which are now emerging, um, this industry is bound to become a little bit less efficient, probably. Um, and um, that's something which we don't we don't like, but something which we probably will have to will have to deal with at some point. Maybe to to dive a little bit deeper into the European aspect of things, let me put a personal touch on it. So um, if, if if I'm talking about um, about this topic in, in regards to you know the tech world, and and you you, you quickly mentioned bipolar. I always try to look from a perspective of like, let's look at the outside and see like, what are the things that we could adapt or why are certain things, you know, in the place where we live, why are certain things not happening or moving or why are people not acting in a certain way or doing certain things compared to, let's say, um, you know, other places. That's a perspective that I would like to look at from. And obviously, you know, especially let's say from a tech perspective now, talking about the US and China. And I think that's, we then look from the European perspective, it's always kind of this, this question around like, okay, so how, uh, how can we as Europe keep up basically, uh, you know, with, with the, the, the fast pace, uh, predominantly obviously in the, and in China, because that pace is, uh, you know, the next level compared to the US. But then again, also this, this, this mindset that, that we have in the US towards, let's say, new things. I think it's perfect that we have this conversation is because you are, as you said, right, your wife is American, if not you, right, who, who understands the difference in culture and the importance of culture when it comes to this discussion, right? Because so I'll give you an example. I have, um, I have this interesting, um, this guy um, who, was, who was in the podcast as well. 
Um, he's a he's he's a venture capital, and he said so. If I'm if I'm in if I'm at MIT, and uh, I talk to the young people there, rarely I find somebody that you know that does not want to start something by themselves, or that does not want to work at the cutting edge of something, or they go into VC. Uh, whereas if I go to a European university, or let's say if I go to in specific because he's also German saying, if I go to a German in the university, I still have young people thinking that they will work, you know, at the classical traditional German corporate for the next 30, 40 years, you know? And, and so that, that is a thought that I want to throw in to kind of use as a, as a, as a pinpoint for, for this, for this topic towards, you know, the European position in, you know, in this, in this race for, for technological excellence, innovation, compared to the um, US or China. So let me argue a little bit pro Europe and, and pro Germany, because that's where I'm, where I'm from. Um, first of all, we have a lot to go for. Um, Germany, Europe have excellent education systems. Um, we have excellent basic research and, uh, and excellent funding of that. So the what we can build on is very, very strong. We also have in many areas, incredibly strong industries and ecosystems. And um, I just, uh, we talked about the automotive industry um, a lot. So yes, you know, some US, some Chinese companies maybe got a little bit of an early start. Um, but uh, if you now watch how the European or the, the German car makers are coming out with their EV lineup, actually, I just ordered mine um, last week, my, my, my new company car. Um, and I'm not going to say by, by which company, but it's a super, super cool car. And I would have that over a Chinese or an American EV uh, any second. Think about Industry 4.0. The whole world is envying us for what we do in Industry 4.0. And I could probably cite a few more examples. The chemical industry in Europe is very, very strong, and there's many, many other ones. So focusing on those strengths, modernizing those industries, um, and also then digitalizing them um, is a very, very strong basis to, to build on. And again, sort of semiconductors are part of some of, of, of many of, of all of those ecosystems. Um, and so we can, we can build very, very strong um, uh, you know, centers of, of excellence um, ecosystems here in Europe um, as well. That's one, one thought, um, focusing on our strengths. And I think uh, we have very, very important strength here in Europe. I do think against those trends happening around us, focusing a little bit more on what's good for us in Europe, um, what's good for us in, in Germany, um, emphasizing aspects of technological sovereignty a bit more than we did in the past is inevitable, but that's also, also good. And I don't think we need to be afraid of anybody. And perhaps as my sort of last remark, and again, a personal example, um, earlier this year, in January, um, our CEO, Reinhard Ploss, came to me with the discussion he had with the chancellor, um, and essentially she challenged him and, and us, German companies, to become more active in the area of, of quantum computing, which is now sort of at the far end of where things are. On 6th of June, we launched um, Nice acronym QTAC, the Quantum Application and Technology Consortium, 
which uh, brings together 10 of the large, largest German DAX companies, all the bluest of the blue chips, um, to work together on the future of quantum computing. That happened in six months, um, legal um, and branding work all around it. So I can tell you, um, Europe can fast, uh, Germany can do fast. It's a ton of fun um, and it's, it's not all, all gloom and doom. Um, realizing that there's always areas where we can improve, but we have something very strong to build on, uh, great education, very successful industries. Um, uh, you know, uh, wh why, not, uh, why not look into the future um, with, this, uh, with this bright outlook and, and, and saying, well, there is something we have to change, uh, but um, we'll succeed and be uh, just as successful um, as some of those uh, you know, maybe more, I would say, we call them agile countries before. Um, we might not be there first, uh, but we might be there uh, second in a, in a, in a much better um, position. So that, that, those are my thoughts. And I guess you, you hear a little bit of uh, somebody who you spend a lot of time in the US, uh, loves the US, love to go to Asia, uh, but at the core is sort of a, a European or a, um, a Schwabe. And if I can sort of uh, flip into German for a second, uh, wir können alles außer Hochdeutsch. Um, so a bit of that, that pride is in there uh, as well and uh, we'll, we'll be fine. I love that. You know, you, you just quickly mentioned quantum computing and, you know, also looking at the time, maybe as a kind of last question, you know, where kind of last chapter of, of our conversation, um, obviously you see a lot of, a lot of things happening, right? I mean, in your position, you uh, work and, and look also at, at a lot of startups at, at the cutting edge, right? Your company is, is, is doing cutting edge work and you know, I, what I want to ask you is, um, so A, or let's say start with the first one. So um, what is something that, you know, from a technology perspective that you are truly excited about from a personal standpoint that you're looking at or that you have looked at, let's say in the past months, something that you are observing, maybe you and your team, you know, and I know there's a lot of things, but let's say, let's, let's, let's break it down for to one thing, you know. Um, what is something that, that, you know, you would like to share and say like, Hey, you know, this is, this is what I have on my radar. And I think developments in there are super interesting, taking into account that developments are always interesting and they're everywhere. Interesting. Right. So, so indulge me and I'll be very quick and mention two. The, the first one professionally is compound semiconductors moving to a whole new class of, uh, semiconductors, which will enable, uh, very, very uh, novel areas, 5G, 6G, uh, when it comes to energy efficiency, huge transition for the industry, um, super exciting uh, to watch and to be part of. And then there is quantum computing, uh, which I, uh, is kind of a personal favorite of mine. I would have never thought when I took my uh, quantum mechanics lectures, um, and there, there were quantum computers mentioned somewhere in there, um, that now um, at, a, at a time when I'm still sort of uh, very much uh, able not only to follow, but also to shape this, um, suddenly we're talking about having productive quantum computers, maybe in three years, maybe in five years. Heck, I mean, that's just practically around the corner and you have quantum computers. I mean, how cool is that? And you're kind of in the middle, um, Infineon supply some components into that and uh, sort of we're working in this industry consortium. That is super cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, also 
taking uh, you know taking a note on what we've just talked previously, I think Europe also has a very very strong composition in that right. I mean, we have one of one of the leading center of center of excellence in 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 the world, I would say, in Europe on that. So there's some really really interesting developments here. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, once again, it's it's built on a on a very very strong uh, foundational uh, basis from the academia. Uh, you know, the, the the federal government is part of the uh, COVID relief package, um, essentially earmarked two two billion uh, for for quantum computing, quantum computing research. We have excellent uh, research and technology organizations like Max Planck and and Fraunhofer, um, and um, you know, if if the ten largest German companies, by the way, it's like 40 percent of the uh, of the old uh, old DAX um, in in terms of market value. Uh, you, taking those together, uh, we we can we can get things going. Hey, Andreas, it was really great having you on the show. A super interesting conversation. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jonathan. It was a it was a great great hour. Um, and uh, all the best to you.